Would you like to find out how to align your life with God's best? I'm Lisa Pulliam, founder of More To Be and host of this podcast. And I believe that the more we seek God and study his word, the more he'll transform us to become like Jesus and equip us to impact this world with kingdom hope. That's what a life aligned with his best looks like. And that's our mission at More To Be, to become more like Jesus. This episode is sponsored by our More To Be Sisterhood. You can join the sisterhood at academy.moretobe.com and get access to a library of biblically-based resources and coaching opportunities. We are so grateful for our sisters from around the world who make this podcast possible. And now let's jump into this episode of the More To Be podcast and seek God to equip us to think biblically and live transformed to be more like Jesus every day. Well, on today's episode of the More To Be podcast, I am joined by Dr. Deb Gorton. She is a clinical psychologist fascinated by what drives decision-making and change. She's in constant pursuit of awareness and big picture perspective. What it all comes down to, navigating our purpose, requires creating a bridge between our head and our heart. And this is what Deb loves to do, creating bridges and inspiring courage in others to make the journey across and then leading others to do the same. Uh, She is uh, Dr. Gordon, uh, although we'll probably call her Deb. Uh, She earned her MA in psychology and her PhD in clinical psychology from Fuller Graduate School of Psychology in Pasadena, California. Additionally, she holds an MA in theology from Fuller Theological Seminary. Presently, she serves as the director of Moody Theological Seminary's Master's in Clinical Mental Health Counseling Program, as well as Moody's Counseling Center. She's the founding president of Civ Consultation, where she really gets to do all the fun stuff listed above, which I also consider fun stuff. <laughs> so yes. I am really glad to have you here. And, <laughs> and I am uh, especially excited to talk about your book that is, uh, what's the release date on your book, Deb? So it actually came out last Tuesday, June 2nd. So it is available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, wherever you buy books, you should be able to track it down. Excellent. And the name of the book, which is important to mention, is called Embracing Uncomfortable, Facing Our Fears While Pursuing Our Purpose. And so uh, tell us, Deb, a little bit about yourself and what led you to write this book. Absolutely. It's, it's, you know, it's a combination of a number of factors. So as you mentioned, I'm a clinical psychologist um, and I've always sort of had a bent for understanding people and what makes them tick. Um, But also in my own life kind of stepped into this role of helper slash problem solver very early on. And, you know, for all of us in in the helping profession, so to speak, um, I think that tends to be how we're categorized. And so for me, um, I really held this identity of fixer as, as what kind of resonated with what I thought I brought to the table. And about 12 years ago, and I talk about this early on in the book, I try to be really transparent with my readers. Um, my family went through a, a significant tragedy. My mom actually took her own life. And so, you know, when I think you're faced with your, your, your deepest fear, which for me was, you know, that there would be something that I couldn't fix which, which happened, right? You, you really have to kind of confront those evil lies that have rooted themselves into the core of your being, or you just almost have to give up yourself. And so um, I spent a, a good deal of time really thinking about how did this impact my life and, and what does it also come to reflect back to me what I've believed about myself? 
which was that I'm only worthy in a relationship, whether it's family, friend, significant other, if I, if I can solve problems, if I can help people um, get through challenges. And here was this kind of ultimate challenge that I hadn't been able to fix, mm-hmm. which then all of a sudden either meant my core identity was completely obliterated or it was founded on a total lie. And yeah. thankfully, you know, through a lot of, a lot of work, um, a lot of my faith journey, I was able to root out that lie. Um, and what came out of this is this reality that so much of what we do is oftentimes based on these false identities in our lives and this striving for comfort and living out the core of who we really are while incredibly uncomfortable in the moment is, is, is very validating and fulfilling in the long term. Oh my word. I am so sorry for the, the reason behind the outcome and the loss of your mom. We have, um, we've personally as a family walked through suicide, not from a relative, but my daughter's classmate. Mm. And actually, as you were speaking about your personality and your helper role, she, before you even said anything about your mom, my middle daughter was the one that came to my mind. She's the problem solver. She's the fixer. She's been the therapist to her friends since she was in fifth grade. By seventh grade, she'd be asking me if uh, she could walk down to get coffee with a friend who really needed somebody to talk to. Wow. And so by eighth grade, when her classmate took his life, it really, um, it's really been something our family has grappled with of, we didn't see it coming uh, with him. I'd, I'd been through suicide five times at that point with my mm-hmm. own classmates and siblings of friends and didn't see it coming. and. And that uncomfortableness of what do you do to serve and love and be connected and be the body of Christ when you can't solve or fix all of the world's problems and you need to entrust that to Jesus. So what has that been like for you in your relationship with your mom in the context of your family as you've navigated this road? Yeah. Well, and I appreciate that you brought up just kind of your, your daughter's heart because at its core, those aren't bad qualities, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like my, my, my compassion and my drive to walk alongside people is what makes me a good counselor, what makes me a good psychologist. But for me, it was that intertwining with my identity and my, right. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, as I, as I grappled with that, a lot of it had to do, I mean, I had to let myself feel all of the emotions that came with it and to recognize that no emotion is wrong. And I think we tend to see certain emotions that result in perhaps behaviors that have consequences as wrong, but no emotion is wrong. And so there were times where I grieved. There were times where I was angry. I felt guilty. I felt disbelief because this was very unexpected. We didn't see it coming. You didn't. Okay. Um, No. And, you know, I think giving myself the space to feel that, but then also really getting back to the root of who I believe I was, that who God designed me to be. And when I was freed to realize that, and, and, and I want to clarify, I struggle still with this every day. So it's not like I've solved the problem of embracing uncomfortable. But when I came to this realization at its core, like really believed this, that my identity starts and stops with being made in the image of God. That's it. Like I yes. can't earn or lose that identity. It mm. really freed me up to recognize where God was calling me into these uncomfortable places. And yeah 
yes, there are emotions that come with that. Like it's scary, it's unknown, it's overwhelming, it's, it's invigorating, it's fulfilling, mm -hmm. but it never changes my identity. And mm -hmm. so that allowed me to have difficult conversations with my family. My mm -hmm. family was incredibly close, but we had some brokenness out of the, the, you know, the choices that my mom made. We've had healing. Um, and I think we always come back to this foundation of we, we're, we're called to, to, to demonstrate Christ in all that we do. And yeah. there's a lot of humility that's required in that. Oh, um, yeah. So yeah, it's been a huge impact and shaping on my life as well as my family's. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, the same for us, you know, the mm -hmm. way we approach relationships, what we, what we ask, what we request, what we're willing to admit all is unfolding. And it's been five years for us since we lost, mm -hmm. yeah, lost, lost Abby's classmate. And, and it, it is that intertwining of identity. So, so when you talk about that, and we use that expression too, as the Imago Dei, you know, who we are made in the image of God, apart from what we do, which can glorify God, but doesn't define his love for us or our love for him even. Um, where have you seen the change occur in you since coming to that reality? Yeah. I, it, it's amazing to me, and this probably goes to more of the scientific side of, of the work that I do, looking at human behavior and studying what motivates us and, and drives our decision making. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always surprised, and again, turning this back onto my own life at how easily we become, or how easily we, we transform an experience or a feeling into an identity. Mm -hmm. Right. So another story mm -hmm. I talk about in the book is is struggling with my comprehensive exam that I failed quite a number of times. And Actually, that was so encouraging <laughs> to me. So thank you Good. for sharing that. <laughs> I'm so glad. I really try to make you know the human experience evident throughout, <laughs> um, at my own <laughs> my own uh, cost. But no. Uh, and and what happened in that was instead of seeing it for what it was, which I failed the exam, right? Yeah. But failure is such a fearful thing for us, mm -hmm. and. I do believe it's because we've embraced not the experience of failure, but the identity of failure. And I fell right into that trap instead yeah. of seeing, I failed the exam, which is disappointing, discouraging, you know, fill in the blank emotional experience. It became, I'm a failure. Yes. Right. right? And right. then that shapes everything going yep. forward because now I'm trying to find my significance and my worth and other things. And, and so I started to really listen and look out for that in my own life and the lives of my clients. And it's amazing. I mean, even something as simple as I feel anxious or I've been diagnosed with anxiety becomes I am anxious. Uh-huh. Yep. It's an identity and it's not oh, yes. an identity. So it starts with our words, which I think really then informs and brings light to how those words impact the way we actually view ourselves. And yeah. that motivates our behavior and our decisions. Oh my word, totally agree with you on 100%. And I had these conversations, my oldest struggles with anxiety. And, and after the initial diagnosis, there's like, how do we respond differently? How do we um, have different practices? How do we heal from this? How do we manage it, right? And within like a year, I said to her, I'm like, listen, you are having a behavior that is qualified as anxiety. You are not anxiety. 
Like that is not who you are. You are Leah made in the image of God who is struggling in this moment with anxiety. I am Lisa made in the image of God. And in this moment, I'm struggling with anger, but I am not angry. Like maybe in the moment I'm angry, but that is not, that is not, uh, I cannot walk around with the label that my mom put on me, which said I was a Viking since birth Mm. because then I, I, I live into and out of that experience rather than understanding, which is what I understand now. I, I come across angry. I am angry, but angry is a secondary emotion. What's really going on is some sort of fear. Absolutely. Fear of getting hurt, fear of, of rejection, fear of needing to self-protect. And so I use anger as my tool in that moment, even if it's dysfunctional, to, to try to accomplish a goal that usually doesn't accomplish very well. <laughs> you hit the nail on the head. That's absolutely it. And we, we internalize these identities from early on. So, yes. I, you know, I think it takes some time to really get to the heart and the core of what we, what we believe about ourselves, because that is whether we realize it or not driving so much of the decisions we make. It does. And, you know, it, what I have found in the last 12 months of working in this equine therapy environment is that we not only do it to ourselves, but we do it, we project it on others, which is why I think we project it on ourselves even more harshly. And I see it actually with the horses, like a horse will do something and they will automatically be deemed a good horse or a bad horse Hmm. rather than asking the question, what has led the horse to respond that way? Yes. Oh my gosh. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and we don't, we, we, we rarely give people and ourselves the benefit of the doubt. You know, I I don't think most people are out there maliciously trying to harm. They're functioning from a place of hurt, trauma. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. even look at what's happening in our our world right now with the protesting of systemic racism and really trying to get to the heart and understand what has happened in our communities of color yeah. for decades and centuries yep. that have has led to a lot of the unrest. So um, ooh, I love that. I, equine yeah. therapy, that's something I need to look more into. Oh, it's fascinating because horses don't fake it. Yeah. They, they will. Well, the interesting thing is a horse will not show its vulnerability of pain if there's not trust. Interesting. So the more you build a relationship with a horse, the more that they will reveal where there's a place of pain on their body. But as self-protection, they hide it. And I'm like, well, isn't that human, right? Wow. Yeah. But then how do you respond to that revelation of that pain and, and walk, you know, through that? And they, they will not hide um, what is going on in you. So that's why they're so effective in a therapy model because they feel the dysregulatedness of us. Mm. And so if we, we, I have learned to cope with my fears through masking it by showing a strong side. I mean, mm-hmm. people have always said about me, you're so capable, you're so confident, you come across so strong, you're so awesome. And I'm like, I'm so insecure. I'm so afraid. Do you not hear or feel my bones clanking inside in terror? Like, like it, I have managed to put up a facade as a coping mechanism I wasn't even aware of. And these dang horses won't let me an inch near them because they <laughs> sense it. And so I've had to learn how to, you were saying this about sensations, like I've had to verbally confess out loud with the people that I'm with 
I am shaking inside as I put this halter on this horse for the first time wow. and, and realize what can I do to regulate that feeling? And I have to slow the bus down. Like, okay, I'm shaking. Why am I shaking? What, what can I do to release that and go slower until I'm no longer afraid and, and then move into that process so that I'm connected to self and connected to this horse or to this person I'm standing with instead of just pretending all the time. Wow. Such a beautiful metaphor for how we have to navigate life. Right. I love it. Right. I, I mean, that's, that's why I love it because it's not just about the horses, it, whatever it is with a horse, I come back to, to my human relationships and they are all undergoing like PhD level of training right now. <laughs> I'm just being forced to evaluate my habits and how I connect and what I do differently. And you know, there was even just a situation this past weekend. I, I was very anxious. Uh, there's a lot of really hard stuff going on, a lot of uncertainty that things I can't control, health scares that always mm. get me. And I was taking it out in anger. Uh, and my husband <laughs> said, uh, can we have a conversation about this privately instead of in front of the kids? And our kids are older. I mean, they're 20, 18, and the twins are 14. And I was like, no. I'm not having a conversation with you. I'm very mature about this. And he said, Lisa, please, can we go upstairs and have this conversation? And I finally, the Holy Spirit just basically picked me up underneath my arms, I think, and carried me up to the bedroom. And I sat down on the bed and he's standing over me, calmly trying to talk with me. And that, that posture alone was too much pressure for mm. me. Yeah. I felt like I was being controlled. And I finally said to him, like, I feel like I'm a 14 year old getting in trouble for having a bad attitude. And he, he said, would you like me to sit down? I said, yes, please. He sat down. I level with me. And then I started to cry and the anger stopped. Mm. And it was this like connection of you, his posture conveyed. We're in this together instead of this like over it wasn't anything it was he was saying it was just my perception of what i was feeling sure yeah and so i just have come to really see that we are so out of touch with what makes us uncomfortable mm -hmm. that we don't even know how to convey it and then our behavior manifests it in a way that is breaking instead of building yeah. i mean am i making any sense whatsoever so much sense. And I think that's part of what motivates us to seek false comfort is that we, we, a don't know why we're feeling uncomfortable yeah. and whether that's good or bad, right or wrong. And so we we're constantly striving for comfort, but then we also aren't really like honing in on what our core values are and then making decisions out of those. And so the decisions we're making are incongruent with those values. Yeah. And then we feel discomfort as a result of that which drives us back to seeking comfort. It's, it's a vicious cycle, but you, you've got it. I mean, that example is, is prime to, yeah. to illustrate this point. I love that you mentioned values. Every single one of my coaching students is going to be like, yes, because <laughs> this is what we teach in session four and, and using the same verbiage that when we're living outside of our core values, there is incongruency and there's conflict internal and external whether those values are competing with somebody else's values or our values, you know, our biblical values are competing with our, you know, uh, values from our childhood. And now we're trying to figure out what way going forward 
without an awareness of that, we continue to live in that place of, of discomfort. And, and, and so is what I hear you saying, the more we identify our values, that's a way out of the uncomfortable, or is that a way, would you say, into embracing the uncomfortable? A little nuanced. Uh, yes, right. I think it's it's both. So, and here's why I would say that. I think that choosing according to our values in the moment can bring discomfort, but it's the short term discomfort for the long term gain of contentment. Yeah. Um, and at, at times, comfort. Comfort's not necessarily a bad thing, um, but we typically do the opposite. We choose short term comfort at the expense of a long-term contentment and we instead experience long-term discomfort. And, and the reason why, you know, without going into how we determine our values, I've got some exercises for that in the book and I know you've got yeah. ways of, of doing that with your clients, but um, you know, I, I see in my clients in particular, um, oftentimes a decision-making model that's based almost exclusively on gains. Yes. What can I gain here? What can I achieve here? What can I accomplish here? without ever looking at what you're losing in the process. And mm-hmm. so I talk about this, this model of decision-making based on every decision that we make involving a loss. And I share this, I share this with my students, I share this with my clients, and usually the first reaction is, well, that's kind of pessimistic, like glass half empty, yeah. but it's true. Yeah. Every decision we make involves a loss. And that's yes. not good or bad, right or wrong, it just is. And if we can start to really consider both sides of the coin, there's a gain here, but there's also a loss. And then we have to ask ourselves, is this a loss I'm willing to incur? And that's where I think our values come into play, right? Like, is this loss something that goes against my values? Or is this gain something that goes against my values? And then we choose accordingly. We say, okay, I'm willing to incur a loss because the gain on the other side is what's most important to me. Mm-hmm. But we avoid the the fact that losses exist. We don't. We want to pretend that they're not there. We want to we want to wish them away or just ignore them or sweep them under the rug. Right. Right. So you know, I guess another way would you say another way to think of it is every yes is a no. Yeah. And every absolutely. no is a yes. Yeah. Right. Great way of putting it. So if we say yes to serving somebody when we really mean to say no, we there there's a cost. Yep. And we, we don't take the time to measure that cost because we're just pretending like that won't, that won't really matter. We'll yeah. just figure that out later. Yeah, absolutely. Or my, or my least favorite statement, well, I didn't have a choice. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. We always have choices. We just yes. don't necessarily like to own the consequences of our choices. And that's the uncomfortable piece. We want to be comfortable. Right. But right. every choice we make involves a loss and a gain or a yes and a no. And so- right. You got to own those things. Right. And I think, um, you know, when we think about our health, that's probably the most obvious of those choices, right? Yeah. I mean, I have pain in my shoulder. The chiropractor told me what to do. I haven't done it. I have a choice to not do it, or I have a choice to do it. Choosing not to do it means I'm going to continue to have pain in my shoulder. Yeah. Complaining about the pain in my shoulder doesn't change the pain in my shoulder. It's still there. Yeah. And usually if we stop and look at why am I avoiding not making the choice to do the exercises that make my shoulder feel better, usually it's, it's not things that are an impossibility. Right. Usually it's things that are an excuse. And we've got to get to the root of why. Oftentimes, you know, it's, there's not enough time. Yeah. Okay, but who's, who is responsible for filling up your time? Yeah. You are, right? And, yeah. and again, going back to 
absolutely saying no to something is not easy. It's not comfortable. It mm -hmm. brings a host of emotions, but what are you losing by saying yes to all these other things filling up your time? Yeah. And so it, this kind of circles back to um, even the scripture passage that that you had suggested that we look at. So if you all have your Bibles, you can open to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to pick up reading at verse 3, but this idea of comfort. So if, if sometimes I refer to it, if our God is comfort, then that is what is ruling our life. And we avoid all the things that are uncomfortable and end up with idols and numbing out and dysfunctions of every kind. Yeah. Right. So how would you um, suggest a better option? Well, I think it's really, you know, it, it's in my line of work, it, the process is always about getting information from the head to the heart. Yeah. Right. We can, mm -hmm. we can rationalize a lot of things, but really believing them out is oftentimes another story altogether. Mm -hmm. And that's, Typically, again, what I would say is because it's uncomfortable. So if we think about, right, this, this, this passage in particular, which talks about God being our comforter, so we can therefore go and comfort others. Mm -hmm. Do we really live in a way that, that suggests that we believe that? And, and, you know, it's interesting. I think a lot of the scripture verses that relate to, can, I'll call them conditions of our heart, mm -hmm. are more about the discipline of choice than about a feeling. And yeah. I do think that's where we can get stuck. I think we can, we can misinterpret. So almost like, you know, when, when, when the Bible says to consider joy or to consider anger even, yeah. right? Yeah. That, that there's an element of, of shifting our actions and our thoughts that will influence the emotion, mm -hmm. but that both can coexist. So if God is my comforter, I don't think that means I'm not going to experience other emotions that would suggest I'm not comfortable. Meaning like yeah. I can believe God is my comforter and still be anxious. Yes. Yes. But what are the actions in my life that align with God being my comforter? Mm, That's good. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm pausing because I'm thinking about a conversation I had with a client this morning. So <laughs> that who, uh, you know, she like many are, is struggling with anxiety and, uh, well, that was one of the things that we were trying to work through of like, what, what was the sensations that she's feeling in her body? What's the trigger moment? What were the sensations that come up? And then what does God have to say about that? Yeah. Uh, and not that the, what God has to say about that is going to immediately combat that trigger or that feeling of anxiousness, but can we begin to build kind of these small, small, small steps into a new neural pathway, you know, essentially yes. a new way of thinking and a new way of the heart, as you say, responding to that experience. Yes. I love it. Yeah. So, so, okay. I want to go ahead and read. I love this passage. I love it. I love it. Love it. It's one of my favorite. Um, I'm going to read in the CSB translation and we can kind of talk it through. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. 
If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patience in a produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. And our hope is for you is firm because we know that as you share in the sufferings, you will also share in the comfort. Mm. Beautiful picture. I know. So unpack that for us from the perspective of, of your life story and, and the, this book. particularly. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I think for me, when I think about the attributes of God, probably the one I've historically struggled with the most is God is comforter. And I think that is because for a long time, I misunderstood what that meant. And, you know, as I've shared, for me, it was, well, God, if you're a God who comforts, why do these challenging things keep happening to me that cause such emotional pain and brokenness in my life? Mm. And, and that's when I realized, oh, my goodness, I've attributed comfort to the absence of pain. <laughs> and it was like this this huge explosion in my in my mind in my heart because I realized first of all pain has a purpose. I'm not saying that I, I, you know I'm 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 never going to be the person who says oh I know why this happened in your life. Nor do yeah. I think anybody else should. We're not God, right? But I do think that God uses all things for His good, and mm. so pain has a purpose in my life and. Sometimes I have to wait to know what that is, but I do know that God promises to bring meaning. And how that brings about comfort is it, it tells me that no detail in my life is insignificant to God and he is present in everything I'm walking through. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so one of the things I talk about throughout the book is the importance of community in embracing uncomfortable, that we can't do this alone. Mm -hmm. And I think, and, and my hope and my prayer for my readers, and, and again, in my own life, is that we apply that in one of two ways. And for some of us, it might be both ways. But one is, for, for some people, it's going to be really uncomfortable to get vulnerable and reach out to, to their community and draw them in. Yep. The community exists, but the actual step of saying, this is where I'm struggling, this is where I'm hurting, this is what I've gone through, is a challenge. Yes, and on the flip side, it's people actually pursuing and opening their doors to community. Yes. Right? Yes. They've got kind of the comfort of their circle. They feel safe. But there are other people out there that are waiting to be invited in. Yes. And yes. so when I think about this first, and, and, and the very essence of it is, you know, is, is, the, is the juxtaposition that between we share in the sufferings and we share in the comfort. So yes. that means to go be present with other people in their suffering and provide comfort. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. While my brain is racing because I'm thinking of two things. I'm thinking of a small group that we were once a part of and one of the people in the group articulated that this was not the space to be vulnerable about our real problems. Mm. That we are supposed to just study the Bible and pray together, but that it was not an environment for that kind of vulnerability. And uh, that was the beginning of the end of our experience with that small group because it just didn't resonate with our core value yeah. of vulnerability, right? Of uh, authenticity. And I know that's one of your values. Authenticity is like my top value. Yeah. It, it has to be real. And I know that that value came out of my dysfunction coming out of a, an emotionally, physically abusive home in which I was told not to tell anybody for my parents to be arrested. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, made me absolutely vow that it will be honest all the time and there will be no secrets. And to, to a dysfunctional point at, at some point where <laughs> sure. I said too much in the wrong 
time in the wrong place. And I've had to learn and God has seasoned me uh, so that I can, I can find the appropriate time and place for that vulnerability. But we can't comfort others if we are not already leading with that honest vulnerability of receiving comfort. Mm-hmm. And I just had a situation yesterday with a, a relatively new friend who has been very honest with me about her struggles. And she asked me how I was doing. I started to cry. And, and it's because I'm in a really difficult place in about eight different directions right now. Mm-hmm. And I, I said, but I cannot tell you what I'm going through because it involved other people in relationship with us. And I knew that I was going to work it through. And I didn't want this to shape or become another person's problem. But as I was sitting there with her, she's like, well, just come sit with me. Just be with me. And I was like, yeah, I I can, I want to do that. And so I felt the Lord prompting me, share something with her, Lisa, so that she doesn't feel like you don't trust her. Hmm. That, that, and I I was like, well, there are lots of other things I can share with her right now. So I just, even though I felt like those things to some degree were trite or like, I should be more mature than this, or I should be more spiritual than this. Like those were the lies going through my head. I just started telling her here's everything else I can tell you that won't, it's my story. It's not somebody else's story. Right. And, and God, the healing that he just like, whoo, washed over in that moment. And also she needed to be in a place of ministering to me. That Mm. was part of God also healing her as I received comfort from her and she was able to speak truth into my life about areas that I was feeling, you know, overwhelmed about. And so this, this idea of the sufferings of Christ overflow to us. So also through Christ, our comfort overflows and just having this visual from yesterday of, of, uh, I was experiencing the suffering in Christ, but God designed the body to stand with us in our weakness. Yeah. And in order for me to receive the, the comfort of Christ, I needed to allow the body of Christ into that, those places of pain without judging myself for the fact that I was feeling pain. Ooh. And you just hit on such a key word, that idea of judgment, right? How often do we judge our pain and our emotional experiences? Right. Right. Which I... I, yeah, it was really ugly in me <laughs> yesterday, <laughs> you know, and, and I, I often go back to if it's, if it's God and his voice, it's conviction that leads us into sanctification transfer, and transformation. Yes. If it's the enemy, it's condemnation that brings about isolation. Yes. Yeah. And, and separation from the body. And so I could see in this like, even my body posturing, like, would I submit to the conviction and sit and, and confess, or would I be controlled by the condemnation and withdraw and run away? Mm, so powerful. Yeah. And yeah. probably quite uncomfortable. It was quite uncomfortable. It was insanely uncomfortable, <laughs> but also incredibly necessary. Yeah. And, and the beauty that comes out of those, those, times where we can embrace, where we choose to embrace uncomfortable yeah. is yeah. just so powerful, as you said. Right. And, it, you know, it was interesting because both of us had confessed that 
we didn't want to be where we were together yesterday that both of us were struggling to not even show up mm. and we didn't even have an issue with each other right like it had nothing we we were two individual women independently struggling looking for the release from the pressure and believing for a hot second that running away was the option mm. that would relieve the pressure when the opposite was true it was this coming together in which God used to relieve the pressure in a pretty significant way. Wow. I know. I know. I'm like, I'm going to just sit with that for a while. And so this, you know, that, that's what kind of stood out to me in reading this passage. Um, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same suffering that we suffer. And this mm -hmm. idea that that is not about, I, it's about us. Yeah, it's, yep, that's exactly it. And, and that, you know, that again, takes intentionality. I think our default mm -hmm. is to be much more self-focused or in reaction or defensiveness to be so other focused that we avoid ourselves altogether, both of which are equally damaging. Right, right. And you mentioned, you know, about the racial tensions right now. So, you know, we're airing this in June of 2020, after George Floyd's death, after the riots and the protests. And uh, we've had Barb Roos on the podcast who has talked about how to bridge this racial divide and understand what is going on from another perspective. And so she talks about this too, of, of taking I out of the equation and, and listening. And so I think that embracing the uncomfortable in that context, like I'd love to have your thoughts on that. What does that look like to embrace the uncomfortable in our conversations as both of you and I are white women with black women? Mm -hmm. um, what does it look like to step into those communities and understand how to navigate through the emotions that come with that? Yeah. Um, and, and it is so applicable right now, the principles in the book, you know, a big part of, of approaching any conversation like that is to, is to first ask, what is my motivation here? Mm -hmm. And the reality is for us as white women, we have, yes, as women, we would represent a minority category, but, but largely we have not had to fight in circles to have our voices heard. Mm -hmm. There have been spaces where we are heard being a part of the majority culture where our, our, our sisters of color, um, especially black women, uh, um, people of color in general have really had to fight to have their voices heard. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a big part of that is, is asking or is, is presenting in a posture of humility to listen and yeah. to really listen. And, and that means I've got to recognize when my emotions start motivating perhaps a defensiveness or a justification or a minimization or denial. I talk about those being kind of the three haters to change in the book, minimization, justification, and denial. And, you know, I can give an example real briefly in my own life over the, over the last week here in June, um, the book came out June 2nd. And when I wrote Timing. this book, right. And I sat down with my publishing team. We had this whole, way of marketing. And then all of a sudden we had COVID-19 and we were sheltered at home. So the whole marketing strategy was out the window and we had a virtual meeting. We said, okay, we're going to reorganize. We're going to re-strategize and we're going to go social media. 
and we're going to do this huge social media launch and we're going to get your endorsers to, to do, to, you know, write about the book and give shout outs. And Monday, June 1st, <laughs> I was, I was sitting in my house and I was having a quiet time and I just knew Deb, your value is authenticity, but not only that, your closest friends, I mean, of the people that endorsed my book, six are, are people of color. Mm-hmm. And I deeply value my brothers and sisters, especially in the African community right now. And I, and I just knew now is not the time to market a book. And a friend, <laughs> um, a social media friend had posted that exact thing. Hey, yeah. my, my white sisters and brothers, would you pause on marketing your own agenda right now? Yeah. And that was uncomfortable. I mean, if I yeah. were being totally honest, there was this tiny little sinful, selfish part of me that was like, but I've worked so hard. Yeah. And I wrote this book and I already had to sacrifice due to COVID and, and the pandemic. I don't want to have to do that again, but that is my agenda. And that yeah. was overshadowing this much needed critical conversation that frankly, we needed to have a hundred years ago more. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. And so it was a conscious decision to say, at whatever cost, I am not putting this book on social media this week. And instead, I'm going to highlight the voices of the people of color in my life that are wise, um, intelligent, uh, thoughtful voices that need to be heard in this moment. And I don't say that to to say I'm this amazing person by any means, Mm because again, I had moments where I was angry and frustrated and and that is terrible because it's nothing compared to what so many people have had to suffer. But it was just a practice of this, of the message of the book to say, yeah. okay, in these conversations, I've had enough time to talk. I've had enough time to, to push my own agenda. I need mm-hmm. to listen yeah. and I need to do my own education. I don't need to put the responsibility on, uh, on my friends in the black community to educate me on what they have gone through. Right. They need their own space right now. Yeah. To process yeah. and to yeah. you know and to grieve and to be angry and to be hurt. And I it's my responsibility to educate myself and to challenge my white brothers and sisters to do the same work in their own life. Yeah. Oh, I think that's a very timely example because what you did was choose others instead of self. And and that I, I love your honesty that that did not come with ease. Yeah. Right. And so that's where I think our spiritual disciplines come in and the power of the Holy Spirit comes in. You couldn't be in that place if you hadn't already been walking that out. Like we don't overnight become spiritually attuned to God's leading and submitted to his authority to love one another and lay down our lives for one another. That is something that has to build over time. So when the conviction comes, it is a, yeah, there's that wrestle, but there's also the trust of submission that God, you're bigger than how I feel. Yeah. 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 Bigger than how I feel, bigger than what I think I should be doing, bigger than where I'm still struggling to place my identity. I mean, let's be honest, even though I know my identity is in Christ, there are times where I'm like, oh, my identity is in my book sales. Or, oh, yes. my identity is in the positive reviews on Amazon. And it's absolutely not, but I fall into that trap oh, yeah. day after day after day. Always. I, as an author and somebody with has to pay attention to metrics, I like, I hate that evaluation. The The one other thing I want to say before we, we end here is that I, I'm very grateful that you emphasized our need to listen without 
what were the three words that you said there? I didn't write it down, but. Well, so the three biggest barriers to change, I think is what you're referring to. Yeah. Minimization, justification, and denial. Yeah. That is like. change haters is what I call them. The three change haters. That is just amazing because that has been what I've become aware of in the last few weeks of when I listen to somebody else talk about their story or talk about their pain and it makes me uncomfortable, I end up in that place of wanting to minimize, justify, and, and just not validate the pain because I'm like, well, but what if, or, but what, you know, how about this or how about that? And I was really like struck by that because I'm a coach trained to listen to other people without giving opinions. I teach women to do this all the time. And yet the reality is the reason we don't do that is when it becomes personal. Totally. Yeah. And so I can, I can listen to a client all week long and it has nothing to do with my life. Yep. It's just theirs. But when I'm listening to a friend who tells me about their struggle and I have been part of the silence or, uh, you know, unknowingly not part of the support or not part of the love that makes me feel icky about me. Yep. So to make my ick go away, I have to change their story. Yep. And that's the problem. Yeah. And, and there's a great way to root that out, which you just kind of demonstrated, right? And in our world, we call it Socratic questioning and it's uh -huh. using one word. Why? Why am I responding this way? And when we find the answer to that, we ask it again. And why am I thinking that way? And what, and it gets down to, right, usually the core of our fears of rejection, abandonment, um, invalidation, unworthiness, all of those kind of things um, mm. really deep down. So I, I love that. And when we can confront that, then we can say, okay, you know what? All I need to do is listen and validate. And another key thing, one little nugget is validation and agreement are totally different things. Mm. So many people think, well, if I validate you, I'm giving you an excuse or I'm agreeing with your position. No, you're just saying, I hear you. I see you. Yeah. I recognize yeah. and acknowledge what you're going through. That is so hard to do when the, when our God is comfort, small C instead of the comforter. Yes. Oh, <laughs> Big C. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, this is so good. I think I hopefully all of my listeners will say this is beneficial and applicable. I have a feeling there'll be more like, now what do I do with all this? <laughs> so, so what you can do with all this is you can go get Dr. Deb's book. <laughs> awesome. I love it. Yes. Yeah. All of the tools are in there to navigate this process. That is awesome. And you know, I'll go ahead and put a plug. Coach training is a great way to like learn this for yourself. I call it a personal spiritual intensive and, and growth intensive because you can't coach until you have answered these questions for yourself. And we talk yep. about identity and core values and answering the why question and what our felt needs versus, you know, uh, uh, core beliefs. Like we go through all this stuff. So, so good. I love so it. Good. Thanks. So uh, remind everybody again where they can find you. So they can find me personally at debgorton.com. There's resources on the book at embracinguncomfortable.com. And you can get the book anywhere you buy books, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, target.com has it. And it's also published by Moody Publishers. You can get it on their website as well. That is awesome. And would you uh, go ahead and pray for us? I would Close love us out in prayer. Yeah. Okay. 
Father God, I just thank you so much for this conversation and this time. And um, as we close out uh, this podcast, I just pray for those that are listening, for those that hear this, uh, regardless of whatever season of life that they are in, that they would know um, that their identity and their worth and their value rest solely in the, the truth, the capital T truth that they are created in your image. And God, I just pray for those that are hurting for community, for true biblical community, God, that you would surround these individuals with people that would love on them and just meet them right where they're at. And for those that are anxious or struggling with this possibility of stepping into and embracing uncomfortable spaces, would you empower them uh, with confidence and courage to take those little steps necessary towards uh, the bigger goal that they're wanting to accomplish. And God, we just thank you for being our comforter in moments of joy and moments of pain as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you again, Deb, for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Would you like to find out how to align your life with God's best? I'm Lisa Pulliam, founder of More To Be and host of this podcast, and I believe that the more we seek God and study His Word, the more He'll transform us to be like Jesus and equip us to impact this world with kingdom hope. That's what a life aligned with His best looks like, and that is our mission here at More To Be, to become more like Jesus. This episode is sponsored by our More To Be Sisterhood. You can join the sisterhood at academy.moretobe.com and get access to a library of biblically-based resources and coaching opportunities.